Second Samuel chapter 22, and I will just tell you all I'm very excited to bring this study tonight. Been looking forward to this one. Okay, no, oh, you're talking to her. No, you're talking to me. I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm like, no, I really am. I'm really kind of glad to bring this, Dan. No problem with that. You were talking to Hannah, right? Gotcha. Oh, because she left you for Selena. <laughs> All right, Second Samuel chapter 22 and and 23 tonight. Unbelievably, we're at the end. Yeah, I'm not even wearing it, am I? Hang on a second. What? Oh, recording purposes. We are at the end tonight, or toward the very end of David's life, which to me is amazing. I was telling Cheryl today how many uh, people in Scripture we have now looked at and gotten to know and, and studied. And, pardon me if I do this. Um, going all the way back to the early pages of Genesis and, and studying and, and looking at uh, Adam at the very beginning and on through to Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and, and just continuing down the line, Joseph and then Moses and, and Joshua and the judges and Ruth. Then we get into the life of David, and I thought, this, this will be cool. We'll be able to camp out for a while because there's so much to David. And we have, in fact, of all the people in the Bible, I believe we, we know probably more about David than almost anybody else with the exception of Jesus. Truly really more is written about David. He's referred to more often than just about any other person in Scripture. And here we are at the end of his life. And uh, there's always, to me, when we come to the end of a, of a segment in Scripture, or even an era, there's always just a strange sadness. And I know that's a little odd, other than the fact that the Bible is living and active. And so we are entering into this, this spiritual realm as we study the Word. We get to places that you can't get anywhere else. You can't get to this kind of place at the end of a good book. Now, if you're anything like me, I'm kind of a sap, and so when I get to the end of a good book, I always you know, kind of mourn that. But man, when I come to the end of David's life, and we're going to look at the last two songs that David sang. The last two songs of his life. And, and to me, there, there's incredible meaning in this. You know I like music. I'm, I'm a singer, and, and well, pretend to be a singer. I'm a songwriter, and, I, and I, I, there's so much to the sharing of a song. I mean, it's like bearing your soul before the Lord or before other people. It's an avenue of spiritual and emotional expression that truly you cannot do any other way. Aaron, you know what I'm talking about. But when you enter into song before the Lord, it is unlike even prayer. It's unlike talking to or about the Lord. When we worship, it is one of the most important and vital things that we do as children of God is to worship and to enter into that place where we just express our souls to Him. And there are times like, you know, the last song, Grace Like Rain. Man, how many times have you sung the words to Amazing Grace and yet every time it's fresh? And when you add in the chorus that that was written with that song, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. And even to sing hallelujah, yeah, yeah, it's not just yeah, yeah, it's like you'd hear on the radio. I mean, it's just, there's no, what else can you say? But hallelujah, and let your voice ring out because there's an expression in song that's unlike anything. And it doesn't matter if you can sing or not. That's something that we sometimes misunderstand. I, I knew a kid, he was in my youth group, and I, you know, I've repented of this sense but when I was in high school this kid was in my youth group he had the worst voice of anyone on the planet I kid you not then anybody who tried out for American Idol this guy was worse okay it was really bad but nobody loved to praise the Lord like this guy did and you know we made fun of that but I look back now and I think he was expressing the depths of his soul to his God and he was right on and I, I believe fully that the Lord enjoyed his worship more than any of ours more than the best of singers. That's why the Bible does say, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Anybody can make a joyful noise, right? A lot of you do, you know? There are many times where I do. I love hitting those notes that completely crack and split and fall apart. And you go, hey, it's a joyful noise, man. That's what it is. But song, it's far more than entertainment. In fact, I think the entertainment factor that's taken up so much of music and singing in our culture has really made it superficial. You know, I was watching um, Lord of the Rings last week when I was sick. I mentioned this before, but, but there's a lot of singing in it. 
And it's, it's singing that is unlike the way we sing in culture. It's, it's, it's singing of history and, and songs. And, and they, they do a great job kind of showing you a different aspect of music. And even while I was watching that, I was thinking, see, that's, that's like our worship. It's not entertainment. We don't gather to, to say, oh, hey, there's a cool song. Oh, I really like this one. Oh, that one gets me on my feet. That's a lot of fun. We sing to express the deepest part of our souls to the Father. That's why we worship. Hebrews 13.15 says, Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Now, for those intellectuals who will show up and say, You know, I'll come for the teaching, but I'm not into the singing. Please understand that when we gather to worship, it's not campfire. It's not the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts singing Old Lang Syne or singing some, you know, Miss O'Leary kicked over the lantern or whatever that song is. This is the expression of the soul, the spirit to the Father. And, don't miss this, the Lord God Almighty calls His children to be singers. He calls us to be worshipers. It was David who set up Asaph and his family. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, he set up this group of people. On the day that David brought the ark into Jerusalem, you remember that fantastic story? The story where he's bringing it down all wrong and his heart's, his heart's in the wrong place. It's all about a big show and a big parade. And Uzzah reaches out and tries to steady the ark that's on that cart. And he touches the ark and he dies. But the second time David does it, it's in pure worship. So he sets up this man Asaph and his family who would also become psalm writers. Some of the psalms are written by Asaph and his brothers. But David commands them saying, Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. He says in 1 Chronicles 16.23, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Let the sea roar in all it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. David says, sing, man, sing. Pour out your heart to the Lord. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled with the Spirit. And then as the expression of being filled with the Spirit, you know what he says? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. He says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and with hymns and with spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He uses these three words, three interesting words about singing, about the way we bring our worship in song. He uses the word psalms, the word hymns, the word spiritual songs. In the Greek, those three words have significant meaning that bear understanding. Psalms are specifically songs written and sung with instruments. It's instrumental praise. Now, interestingly, I grew up in an a cappella singing church that was very proud of that heritage and clung very tightly to it. Now, my parents loved it because, especially my mom, being a musician herself, she's a violinist, an amazing violinist, but she just loved a cappella singing. She would tell me, I'd say, why don't we use instruments? She would say, oh, because, because I just enjoy it. We enjoy a cappella singing. But there were those in, in that fellowship as I grew up who felt like it was wrong to sing with instruments. I got into high school and I ran across these verses saying that we are to speak to one another in psalms. And the word psalms is from the Greek psalmos, which the root word is solo. You know what that word means? To pluck. You pluck. You don't pluck a voice. You pluck an instrument. And so psalms are specifically, and David's psalms are specifically songs written with the lyre or the harp or the guitar or some kind of instrumental praise that accompanies it. That's psalms. Hymns. Humnos in the Greek. Are songs of praise of God's conquerors and heroes. They're exaltation songs. We talk about the old hymns, but going back further than the hymns that we think of, the old Baptist hymnal that you were talking about earlier, Karen, going back further than that, David talked about hymns, and they were simply songs that lifted up and exalted kings. So when we sing hymns to God, they're great songs of exaltation. But then he uses this phrase in both Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. He says spiritual songs. 
We are to praise the Lord in spiritual songs. What are those words? Pneumatikos ode. It's kind of cool to say. Pneumatikos ode. Sounds kind of like a Latin singer, you know? Hey, now! Anyway, sorry. Pneumatikos ode, which is literally an ode in the spirit. An ode in the spirit. I, I thought about that. Pneumatikos, that, that same word, is used for connected to spiritual gifts, connected to spiritual things, to spiritual utterances. Paul would later say, don't, don't be afraid of the spiritual utterances, the spiritual things. Pneumatikos, ode, a spiritual ode. And in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 14, Paul says something very interesting to me. He says, if I pray in a tongue... My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. He's talking about prayer languages in that chapter, in that section. We're not going to get into it big time tonight, but it's very interesting. He's talking about entering into a prayer language to the Lord, and as far as I can understand, he's talking about a language that you don't necessarily even understand yourself. In fact, he says, and I read it again, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind's unfruitful. I don't know what I'm saying but I have a spiritual connection with the Father, Paul says. What is the outcome then? He says, I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. And then he says this, I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Singing in the Spirit. That's interesting to me. I've been asked on occasion about some of the songs that we sing at the bridge, some of the songs that I've written and how I write those songs. And in previous years I would have said I have no idea where they come from because I don't read music, so I don't really know where the songs come from. Well, I know now. It's pneumatikos O'Day. It's songs in the spirit. I mean, there are times, and you, and until I began to read and understand some of this stuff, I would have thought it was just really strange. In fact, I would lock myself away where no one could hear because I would just sit there and I would sing, and I wouldn't even know what I was saying. And I'd have, you know, just playing songs, and not even knowing what was coming out of my mouth. It didn't make sense to me. But songs began to come from that and to flow through that. And so a lot of the songs that we have, and, and, and people say, well, how long did it take you to write that song? And I'll say, ah, like 10 minutes. And they go, what? No, because, and and that's what I know, by the way. When the song writes itself, I know the Spirit is writing it. And I know He's writing it for this fellowship and for the church. And and it's funny because I, I, I finally learned I can't take credit for those at all. I really can't. And it's not false humility. It's just truth. I can't take credit for something I didn't do. Pneumatikos Ode. Very interesting to me. I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the mind also. So Paul describes these three aspects of worship, especially singing worship, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And it's interesting to me because David was a man of the Spirit. No wonder he was such a songwriter. These songs flowed out of his Spirit. He wasn't writing them to impress anybody. As I said before, I don't think he wrote most of the psalms even thinking that we'd be reading them here 3,000 years later. A lot of the psalms are so personal. They're like a journal. They're his poetry. They're the songs that he wrote in the dead of the night, in the dark place of the soul where he was afraid and alone and crying out to God. And he wasn't thinking, I wonder if they're going to like this one. Let me tweak this chord a little bit. Let me change those words. Ooh, that's hip. That's hot. That'll work. Simon Cowell will think this is awesome. (laughs) Sorry. David was a man of the Spirit and the way we know this at least one way is by the prophetic and spiritual nature of his songs so tonight we come to the end of his life and what we're going to look at is two songs the last two songs I believe that David ever wrote before he slept before he died and went to his father's let's pray for a moment and we'll get into these songs Lord Jesus we thank you that you saw fit through your servant David to give us psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We thank you and praise you, Lord, that across the centuries you have called forth worship from the heart of man. We thank you even tonight that we're able to, to come here and be blessed by the spiritual songs, the hymns, and the psalms, Lord, that you have inspired men to write and women to write. We thank you for the blessing of song. And we pray as we study tonight, Lord, would you infuse in us a new heart for worship. 
May we never be among those who set aside worship just, just for teaching or set aside worship for fellowship or say, I'm going to come late because I just don't like to sing. Lord, convict us of that and bring us into the assembly with hearts ready to praise you with all that is in our hearts. Tonight, Father, show us one last time through David's songs the heart of a spirit-filled man. And I pray you will write these things on our hearts and intensify and deepen our worship because of them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1. David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. This is a song of now deliverance. Verse 2, he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. And right off the bat we get this Hebraic picture of poetry and worship and and a Hebraic mindset. What do you mean Hebraic? A Hebrew mindset. This is how Hebrew people thought and think. Very different than the Greek mindset. The Hebrew mindset was much more into pictures and types and shadows and metaphors and drawings. That's how they understood things. Whereas in the Greek world, with the Western mindset, we might say God is powerful. A Jewish person would say God is a rock. I would say God's my savior. A Jew would say God is my refuge. And they could think of that refuge on a hill. He says God is my fortress. Now if you've been to Israel and you've traveled up to the top of Masada, you get a picture of what David meant when he said God is my fortress. He's my safe place. No one can touch me. When I'm in the presence of my God. By the way, this chapter, chapter 22 of 2 Samuel, is repeated in the 18th Psalm. It's the same one. You read Psalm 18, 2 Samuel 22, same Psalm of David. It's a song of salvation. But it's not only a song of protection by the Lord from his enemies, but of rescue from certain death. David is now 70 years old, at the very end of his life. And he's looking back over his life and thinking of the battles and the challenges, thinking of the assassination attempts on his life, and realizing, I have lived 70 years. I've made it this far. And there's only one reason I've lived this long. It's because God is my rock and my stronghold and my refuge and my salvation. And gang, this is our song. It's a song of salvation. It is the song that we sing. J. Vernon McGee writes this beautiful song of praise. It's not only great literature, it opens up new vistas for us. It lets us see something that is much more glorious than, than a sunset or the rising of the moon. It speaks of the marvelous relationship one man had with the Almighty God. The rock, the fortress, the refuge, the shield. He's also our deliverer and our savior. Words which would bring to the Hebrew mind another picture. Pictures of men like Moses or Joshua or the judges or even David himself. And all these pictures and portraits, like so many things we see in the Hebrew scriptures, are but shadowy representations of the son of David, Jesus. And we see in this psalm, Jesus spoken of, Jesus indicated throughout. Jesus, Yeshua, in the Hebrew, which means God saves. So it stands to reason that a song of salvation would be about God who saves, Jesus Christ, our Savior. By the way, back at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5, we see a group of people singing a song. It's 24 elders. And if you've gone through our Revelation series, you know this. The 24 elders, I believe, are both actual and representative. I believe they're representative of the church. And I believe that partially because of the song that they sing. Listen to this. Revelation 5.9 says they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Well, who has been redeemed to God by the blood? The church has. It's us. So, this song is our song. The song of the Lamb in Revelation 5.9. They sing, and you've made us 
to God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. He rescued us, as David says here. He rescued us. He rescued us because he delighted to do so. Go on to verse 5. For the waves of death encompassed me. He says, the torrent of destruction overwhelmed me. Watch these words carefully. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God. And from His temple, He heard my voice. And my cry for help came into His ears. And then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of heaven were trembling and were shaken because He was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils. Fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. And he rode on a cherub and flew. And he appeared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him. A mass of waters, thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven. And the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. And then the channels of the sea appeared. The foundations of the world were laid bare by the rebuke of the Lord at the blast of the breath of His nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord, the Lord was my support. He also brought me forth into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. Now, I mentioned this psalm is in two places. Right here in chapter 22 and again in Psalm 18. But why is it repeated? Why would you do that, Lord? We got it the first time. Why go back over it again and have it show up twice? I believe it's because this song is twofold in nature. There are two aspects of this psalm. There is a, an historical aspect where David is, is portraying his life. And he's recording it and saying, God saved me in magnificent ways. Ways that I, I couldn't even have imagined him saving me. He stepped in at times where my life was at the end. It was impossible. And yet God did it. But this psalm is not only for the purpose of history. It's for the purpose, I believe, of prophecy. David says some things in here which, if are taken literally, never happened in his life. At least from our reading of the scriptures, tell me, when was it that David saw the Lord make a darkness canopies around him, a mass of waters and thick clouds from the sky? And when did he send out arrows and scatter them and lightning and routed them and the channels of the sea appeared? Listen to this, the foundations of the world were laid bare. Well, we've studied the entire life of David and I never saw that. The foundations of the world laid bare? At the rebuke of the Lord and the blast of his nostrils, and you might say, what? That's just poetic, right? It's just Hebrew poetry. Yeah, partially. But I'm convinced it's also Hebrew prophecy that directs us to the life and the work of Mashiach ben David, Messiah the Son of David, Jesus Christ. If you read this and you think about Jesus' life, Jesus was surrounded by enemies. The waves of death encompassed him. And when he died, what happened? The earth shook. And it quaked. And thick darkness fell across the land. But gang, it gets more intense than that. If you take this, and I'm going to let you just do this on your own time. I encourage you this for your own study this week. Go back over this psalm, read through it, and compare it to Revelation 6-19, through 19, the tribulation. Because the comparison is dramatic and stunning. This stirring song, I believe, is a prehistorical account of the tribulation that we read in Revelation 6 through 19. It leads off with the wrath of the Lamb, Revelation chapter 6, and ends up seven years later with Messiah's mighty return bringing deliverance to the remnant of Israel. As he says in verse 17, he sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. That is exactly what Revelation promises God is going to do with the remnant of Israel. He delivered me from my strong enemy. As you see in Revelation 12, man, that dragon, that beast just going nuts, chasing off after trying to destroy the people of Israel, who then are drawn away and rescued and taken to a place in the wilderness, a place that many scholars believe, and for good reason biblically, it may be Petra, which if he doesn't come before then, this October, Israel trip, we are going to Petra. 
We're going to check that out and see that place and that location. And when we're there, we're going to do some study and talk about that amazing prophecy that may actually indicate Petra. But compare the two on your own. There's so much to this prophetical picture that you can study through and think through and sing to the Lord yourself. We're going on in verse 21. It says, The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. Watch this. According to the cleanness of my hands, He has recompensed me, David writes. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not acted wickedly against my God. All His ordinances were before me and as for His statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless toward Him. (laughs) And I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness, before His eyes. And I read that and say, what a hypocrite. Come on, David. I'm sorry, dude, but we've studied your life. We know the truth here. Clean hands, blameless, righteous dude. No, I don't think so. I seem to recall something in David's life about, oh, I don't know, lust, deceit, adultery, murder. It doesn't sound like a guy with clean hands. How can David in his old age justify such statements? Well, maybe he's, maybe he's just, you know, a little losing it. You know, maybe he's got old timer's disease and he's not really cluing in. Maybe he's, he's a doddering old fool, that's what it is. And he's just not remembering what he did in his life. You Christians, I think, can understand what David is saying. Have you ever had someone question your faith? Ever have somebody look at you and say, You call yourself a Christian? What a hypocrite. That's the number one word applied to Christianity by the non-Christian world. Hypocrites. I've told you before, when someone says, you Christians are hypocrites, I say you're absolutely right. Of course we are. I, I know I'm not perfect, and yet I am. I know I'm not righteous, and yet I am. And they look at me and say, doddering old fool, what are you saying? How can you say something like this? We even started a bumper sticker campaign years ago to justify ourselves. You've seen the stickers, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Which, considered in this way, it's kind of funny. I'm not perfect, okay, I'm just forgiven. That's my excuse for claiming holiness and righteousness. No, I know I'm not. I know I'm messed up. I know I'm as bad as you. (laughs) But God doesn't see it that way. I just happen to be seen as righteous by Him in spite of myself. And that's what's going on here. I believe David, you know, he knows his sin personally. We've seen that. He's confessed his sin openly before the Lord. Psalm 38, verse 4, he says, My iniquities have gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. This is not a guy who doesn't know what he's done. He says, if I confess my iniquity, he says, before I confess my iniquity, I am full of anxiety because of my sin. Psalm 51, both of these, by the way, he wrote after the Bathsheba incident. But Psalm 51, verse 2, Dave says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. By the way, do you ever feel like that? Feel like your sin is just ever before you? Every time you turn around, you're just saying, I'm sorry, Lord. Did it again. Oh, Lord, I wish I could be free of this and rid of this. This is what David is saying. He says, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And you read that, then you come over here and you go, then how can David claim to have clean hands? How can David, who knows his sin whose sin is ever before him, how can he stand up and say, I am righteous and I am blameless? The same way our elders can. You know that one of the qualifications for being a shepherd in the church is blameless? Uh, That's the one that that every single guy I've ever talked to about being an elder, they come to that one and they go, (laughs) I was doing okay on the, you know, not too many wives thing because I just have one, but the blameless thing. I got a problem there. How can David say this? Listen, before the Lord, and this is so important, before the Lord he confesses his sin. Before the enemy he declares his righteousness. Christians need to get that down. Before the Lord, it's confession time. Before the enemy, I am a righteous child of God. 
And Satan's got nothing on me. To the Lord my sins I must confess. To the enemy I claim my righteousness. When Satan hisses and says, How can you say you're righteous? I say, you got nothing on me, Satan. I have been blood-bought by Jesus Christ. I am righteous because of Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And when people ask you, why would you want to be a Christian? Here's your answer. Because I can be made holy in spite of myself. That even though I am a mess in my life, I can hand my life over to Jesus, be covered in His blood, washed thoroughly clean, and seen as righteous to the Lord, and I'm a saved person. And that's good news. It's the good news. To the Lord's my sins I must to the Lord my sins I must confess. To the enemy I claim my righteousness. See, Revelation twelve, verse ten tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That's what he does. In fact, the one thing Satan tries to use on you and on me, the only power really that he has over us is his accusation. And whether or not we'll hear it. We're told that day and night he accuses the brethren before God. But it tells us this also. Revelation 12.11 says, And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb comes first and then the word of my testimony. I have been covered with the blood of the Lamb, so my testimony is I have been saved and I am righteous before Jesus. Amen. That is great news. The blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony. Satan condemns the brethren. The Lord turns right around and commends the brethren because of the blood of the Lamb. And so I can declare, just like David does, and I think rightly so, David is able to say I'm righteous. My hands are clean. In this last song. Now David continues to sing. And he starts to get into some more of the, of the nature and the character of the Lord. Verse 26 he says, With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the perverted, you show yourself astute. Which is a nice theological Bible student type of a word, but it's the wrong word. I thought, why does the Lord show himself astute to someone who's perverted? What's the deal here? So look up the word astute. The word is patal in the Hebrew, and it's not astute. It's twisted. So read it that way. To the perverted, you show yourself twisted. Why did they translate it astute? Because they were confused, probably. (laughs) Because what does that mean? With the perverted, you show yourself twisted. It's very simple, gang. The more crooked or twisted you are, the more twisted God will seem to you. The more perverted I am, the more perverted God seems. The more full of sin I am in my life, the more bitter I am, the more I have to blame God because He can't possibly be loving or faithful or generous. All the things you Christians say, that can't be God. Why? Because that's not me. We see God so often in our own image. Which is why to the perverted... God seems twisted. That's what sin does. It twists the mind to the point that a person is unable to think straight. The rebellious heart seems God sees God as patal, as twisted. Proverbs seventeen twenty says, "He who has a crooked mind finds no good." If your mind's twisted up, you can't see straight. You can't see clearly. You can't think spiritually. And the carnal man doesn't understand the spiritual. Paul says. Why? Because the mind gets, it gets twisted up. In the late 1980s, Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song, a beautiful song, called For Who He Really Is. Some of you may remember that song. The chorus went like this. He said, Can they see God for who He really is in what they see in you and me? Can they see God for who He really is? For who He really is is all they really need to see. If we just see God as He is, if we look at God in truth, not perverted and twisted by the work of sin, but perfect, loving, holy, and true, if we see God as He is, that's what we need. That saves us. That draws us into our salvation. Seeing Jesus Christ as our loving Savior, boom, that's all you need. Because you cannot help. You are compelled by the love of Christ to be changed. But what about those who are already twisted up by sin? 
Well, this is absolutely amazing to me. The Bible tells us there is a way that God chose in this age to reveal His purity, His righteousness, His holiness, and His glory to this perverted and crooked generation. Paul says in Philippians 2.14, Do all things, talking to Christians, without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. This is incredible. I mean, you would think that that the way the Lord would show Himself pure and holy and righteous to the world is by showing His power. Well, He did that in Israel. He did that in Canaan. You see, more Canaanites wiped out than coming to the Lord. Because when He showed His great glory and power, it just freaked people out. So, He does the most bizarre thing. He picks Lou. And He says... I'm going to show myself to the world through you. Now take that personally. That freaks me out. Rick, I'm going to show myself to the world. They're going to see my glory in the way your life has been changed by me. You've got to be kidding, Lord. They're going to see you through me. I I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. The angels looking over God's shoulder in heaven are still, the Bible tells us, longing to understand that program. You're, you're using them. You've got to be, No way, Lord. Have you seen the way they... I mean, they're so messed up. And you're going to show your glory through them? Absolutely. 2 Corinthians 3.18 with, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. As we look to the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from His glory to our glory. Just as from the Lord the Spirit... And even the perverted and the twisted in the world who can't see God for who He really is can see God for who He is when they look at His glory in your life. When when they look at how He has worked and what He's doing and how you are so different and so changed by His Holy Spirit. Such is the nature of grace. Hallelujah, grace like rain pours down on me and it's not just for you because the more grace works out in your life the more other people are saved by that grace in your life. And then it spreads to their life. And people who know them say, wow, you're so different, you're so amazing. Yeah, it's grace. It's amazing grace. Even as it straightens me out, I begin to appear as a light in the darkness. As if the glory of Christ is present in me. As Paul says, it's reflected by me. I mirror the image and the glory of God. Now, going on, this is part of the song that really starts to rot. Verse 28. Verse 28 goes on and says, You save an afflicted people. But your eyes are on the haughty whom you abase. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illumines my darkness. Think about that. That's what we just said. The Lord illumines my darkness. On my own, I'm a dark dude, but God illuminates me and brings His glory out through me, His grace in me. He illumines my darkness. It's not just He shows me the way, it's He changes me inside out. For by you, verse 30, I can run upon a troop. But my God, by my God, I can leap over a wall. As for God, His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. I I like that phrase right there. The word of the Lord is tested. Throughout all of the centuries of the world, this book has been tested and tested and retried and tested. Again and again, people try and come at this thing and say, No, that can't possibly be true. Prove it to me. And it continues to be proven true. The Word of God stands, my friends. It stands firmly. It stands strong. It has been tested. And He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock besides our God? I really think at this point David introduced a little distortion in the electrical guitar right there. And he says, God is my strong fortress. Okay, they didn't have electric guitar back then. I know that. God is my strong fortress. Do they have an electric lyre, you think? David hits the distortion pedal. God is my rock! He sets the blameless in his way. He makes my feet like hind's feet and sets me on my high places like deer's feet. 
Like you can dance around the mountains. You can go higher and higher with God because of what He does. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. And you have also given me the shield of your salvation and your help makes me great, He says. You enlarge my steps under me. My feet have not slipped. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. When I did not turn back, and I did not turn back until they, would, they were consumed. And I devoured them and shattered them so that they did not rise. And they fell under my feet. You have girded me with strength for battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also made my enemies turn their backs to me. And I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but He did not answer them. Then, I love this verse, then I pulverized them as the dust of the earth. I beat the snot out of them. See, this is why David's the psalmist and I'm not. He says, I pulverized them as the dust of the earth. I crushed and stamped them as the mire of the streets. By the way, a little side note here, where does your strength come from in the Lord? What is the source of strength in the Lord? The Bible tells us the joy of the Lord is my strength. I have my greatest strength for battle in the joy of the Father. When He rejoices, when He, as we sang earlier, sings over me, that's where my strength comes from. But something very interesting here to stop and think about. David describes what happens to those who set themselves against the rock. The rock who is God. The rock of our salvation, who the Bible says is Messiah, son of David, is Jesus Christ. He is our rock. And those who will set themselves against the rock get pulverized, get crushed. And Jesus said, did you never read in the scriptures, the stone about which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. He says, He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust, pulverized, as David said. Now, I've read that verse over and over. And in fact, in Christianity, we've tended to use this verse to talk about our brokenness before the Lord, that Jesus is the rock, and when he says, he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and we say, well, that's me. That's my Christian life. You know, I fall on the Lord, and he breaks me of myself. And then on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Well, that's if, if someone chooses to rebel against Jesus, right? So isn't that what he's saying? I, I, I think that's a, a beautiful, poetic way to look at it, but I don't think that's what he's saying. Now, the Bible does talk about our brokenness. And the message is certainly biblical that we come before the Lord with a broken and contrite heart, David wrote. But this passage is unique. I believe it's a message for Israel. Listen very carefully to this. Jesus said in Matthew 21, 44, at the beginning of the verse, He said, He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. He says... The person who falls on the stone, he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Now remember who Jesus is talking to in Matthew 21, Jewish leaders. And he's dealing with the Jewish people. And he is most likely here when he says he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, he's most likely talking about the imminent fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It would come just years after his own death. And what happened in A.D. 70? Israel was broken to pieces scattered all about the world for centuries but it was a breaking that did not wipe them out for all the pieces of Israel that were broken in AD 70 and then again in AD 110 driven from the land in in what's called the dispersion those pieces of Israel are everywhere until the Lord said Ezekiel 37, 38, 39 and other places that I'm going to start bringing them back I'm going to restore them to the land He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Not one stone of the temple was left standing on another as Israel was broken. Again, a remnant of the Jewish people will be those who survive and will be those I believe he's talking about when he says the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Now I know as Christians we say, well no, no, that's us. See, Jews blew it. We get it. 
They lost the kingdom. We have the kingdom. No, no, no. They will enter the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, as God promised they would through all the prophets. And in the book of Revelation, when it talks about that thousand year reign of Christ, you know the number one reason for the millennial kingdom is promise kept to the Jews. And there will be a remnant of Jews, the Bible tells us, who have been saved, who get through the tribulation, and they will be ushered into the kingdom, and they will be a people producing the fruit of that new kingdom. Well, what about us? What do we get to do? Oh, nothing much, just rule and reign. (laughs) Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 20, check it out. In fact, in chapter 20 it tells us six times. A thousand year reign is going to happen and we're going to rule in his royal government. There's not going to be any election standoffs during that time. But then he says, on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust. This rock will scatter the nations and the peoples who remain rejecting and rebellious of the king. They will be pulverized just as David sings in his song. If you think back, those of you who have studied this story, Nebuchadnezzar, in the days of Daniel, had a weird dream. You ever had those just really freaky, nightmarish type dreams, and you're really not sure why they're scary, because when you think back over them, they're not, they're not scary, but there's something just foreboding about them. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, a dream like that. He dreams of this massive statue, and he's proud of it because it looks like him. It's got a head of gold, this pure gold head. And then it's got this, these silver arms and chest. He's going down the statue, the, the belly is bronze. And the legs then are, are, are iron. And then the feet are a mixture of iron and clay. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's dreaming this dream and he looks at the statue and goes, you know, he's just impressed. Again, because I, I think it looked like him. It's his, his view of kingdom and being a great ruler. In fact, later in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar will erect a 60-foot high statue that I think is probably modeled after the the image in his dream. But so this this massive statue is just there before him and he's just going, wow, awesome. And then out of nowhere, that horrifying feeling sets in because something is coming and he looks and there's a stone that he describes not cut out by human hands. But a massive stone is flying through the heavens. And it crashes into the feet of the statue, just shatters the feet. And the whole statue just comes apart and is absolutely pulverized like chaff blown into the wind. Nebuchadnezzar wakes up in the morning in a cold sweat. What is that all about? He calls in all of his advisors. And he says, all right, I had a dream and I want you to interpret it. And they go, oh, great, tell us the dream. And he goes, no, you tell me the dream. (laughs) And they go... Oh, dude, <laughs> we're in trouble now. Well, you t- if you guys are really spiritual advisors, like to say you are, tell me the dream. And they can't do it. So he's going to wipe out all the wise men of his kingdom. Well, Daniel's one of them. And Daniel says, let me have a shot at it. He comes into the king and he begins to describe the dream. He tells it perfectly. And then he says, this statue are kingdoms. The gold head is you. Nebuchadnezzar goes, yeah. I thought it was. (laughs) But the silver arms and chest are a kingdom that will follow you. We know that is Medo-Persia. The bronze belly, that's going to come later. We know that was Greece. We have the benefit of history. We can now look back. The iron legs, Rome. The feet, a mixture of clay and iron. Well, that's, that's a story for another time because that hasn't yet occurred. We'll talk about that at another time. But this stone comes out of nowhere, and this is what Daniel says about it. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. Well, who will it be left for? It's the kingdom of David. It's the promised kingdom to Israel. He says it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar hearing these words from Daniel and just sitting back in his throne and going, Wow! 
This guy is amazing. And Daniel's just saying, this is what the Lord showed me, man. This is from God. The kingdom in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is the rock. The rock is the kingdom. But the rock is also the king. You can't have a kingdom without a king. And Jesus, the rock of our salvation, is either the stone, the foundation stone on which we stand, or he is the rock of destruction. And the choice is ours. Will we stand on him, with him, for him, or be destroyed by him? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 says, this is contained in Scripture. Peter says, he quotes, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed or literally will not be put to shame. The stone which the builders rejected. This became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for they stumble because they're disobedient to the word. And so David says in his psalm, I pulverized them as the dust of the earth. I crushed and stamped them as the mire of the streets. Historically, yes, you did, David. Yes, he cleared out Israel. He finally brought peace to the land. Prophetically, it's exactly what Jesus Christ, the Son of David, is going to do. Verse 44. You have also delivered me from the contentions of my people. So he's been delivered both from without and from within. You have kept me as head of the nations. A people whom I have not known to serve me. Foreigners pretend obedience to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners lose heart and come trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives. And blessed be my rock. And exalted be God, the rock of my salvation. The God who executes vengeance for me. And brings down peoples under me. Who also brings me out from my enemies. You even lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations, and I will sing praises to your name. See, he's not singing because he likes to sing or it's just fun. It's not lighthearted to David. He sings because he has been saved. And he says, he is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants or seed forever. An amazing Amazing last song of David, penned in his last days, but it's not his final tune. For he sings one more. Verse 1 of chapter 23. These are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, The man who was raised on high declares, The anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. And here's what he declares. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And his word was on my tongue. Pneumatikos ode. The spiritual song. The spirit came on me. That's why I wrote this. That's where this comes from. It's not just the meanderings and the musings of my heart. It was the spirit on me. And I love the contrast here that David writes between young David and old David. He spends his entire life in this last song. He talks about being a son born of Jesse. Humble David, born of Jesse in Bethlehem, and nobody on that little hillside out there watching the sheep. But he sings now of his exaltation as king over all Israel as a man raised on high. What made the difference for David? The answer is right here. The anointing. The anointing. The man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of the God of Israel and the sweet psalmist of Israel says, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and that's the deal gang the anointing of God elevates and exalts and lifts us up his holy decision to pour the oil of his holy spirit on us is what makes a person great in God's eyes not the things we do but the anointing he gives and so David says the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and he's going to give us one final picture watch this verse 3 the God of Israel said The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. I mean, this this could be a song right out of the 60s, you know? 
and the sunshine coming in. You almost see some daisies popping up as the grass comes out of the ground. It's a beautiful picture, but notice this is what David says the Lord spoke about him. I, I had to read this a couple times to catch that. I thought it was talking about God. As the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, tender grass springing out of the earth through, sun, through sunshine after rain. I thought, oh, what a beautiful picture of God. Then I looked again and said, no, wait a minute. David said, the God of Israel and the rock of Israel spoke to me and said this. This is what God said about David, which is pretty cool. He compares David to grass. He said, David says, I'm like that soft, wet spring grass that sprouts and grows. You know on those humid mornings in the springtime when you you can smell the grass growing and the dew is thick on the ground? And David says, those little blades of grass, I'm one of those. I'm a little piece of grass popping up out of the ground. Which I think is awfully cool because science has yet to replicate that. Science, for all of its wonders and achievements and, and discoveries, still can't replicate a single blade of grass. And David says, I'm just like a blade of grass. God made me that way. Verse 5, he says, Truly is not my house so with God? For he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he indeed, will he not indeed make it grow and here's a wonderful principle of spiritual life. God desires growth. God makes things grow. David's about to die, and yet he's saying, I'm still growing, man. My house is still growing. This, this kingdom that God started in me is still like that blade of spring grass. Is still growing. Is still cropping up. God makes things grow. This is one of the most eloquent pictures in the Bible of how the Father intends to grow you and to grow me. He created the unstoppable power of growth in the natural world. God commands the constant growth for His coming kingdom and He calls forth growth in you and growth in me. And it doesn't matter if you're a newborn baby Christian or you've been a Christian 70 years. God still intends for you to grow like a brand new piece of spring grass Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.17 Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Too many are saved and sit right there. As Les likes to say, we need to get saved some more. We need more salvation. Not that we can be more saved, but we certainly can grow in our salvation. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And to this we have been called. And this is what David is describing. Two things in the psalm. And the first is simply this. Growth as of new fresh grass. That's the growth of someone who is walking in the Lord. It's healthy, it's good, it's beautiful, it's fresh. But there's another kind of growth. It's not so good. A growth that in and of itself is a twisted kind of growth. Verse 6. But the worthless, Bible students, you may recall, that word worthless, it's sons of Belial. Sons of Belial. Remember Paul said, what harmony has Christ with Belial? That's where it comes from. Sons of Belial. Belial means worthlessness. It's connected to Satan. But But the worthless, every one of them will be thrust away like thorns. There's your picture. Sweet grass, twisted thorns. Grass or thorns. Because they cannot be taken in hand. Don't you hate that when you're out pulling weeds and you've got good gloves on but the thorns get through anyway? And not only do they get through, but then they break off and they stick in the glove and you can't find them. And you take the glove off and you shake it out and you pull out all the thorns you find in your hand. You stick your hand back in there and there it is just waiting. Ah, I got you. Ah, I hate that. It just happened last week and I'm still still bemoaning that. You know, I was trying to pull these weeds and they're just real thick thorny ones. And that's what happens when we grow wrong. Since they cannot be taken in hand, the man who touches them must be armed with iron in the shaft of a spear, and they will be completely burned with fire in their place. 
And that's the last song of David. Well, thanks a lot, David. That's real cheery. It's the last thing he writes in music form. And it's one of the most important and the most powerful because in it he expresses the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the choice. We can be that fresh grass or we can be twisted like thorns. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 7 says the ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God but if it yields thorns and thistles it's worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned you see the Hebrew writer and the psalmist David are on the same page they're writing about the same thing the cursed life yields a twisted, thorny, thistly growth. The cursed life. Going all the way back to the very first man and his curse, Adam, in Genesis 3.17, God said to him, Cursed is the ground because of you and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And thorns in the Bible, gang, are synonymous with curses. For the man of Belial, the woman of Belial, things will still grow. You're still going to grow, but they grow like thorns. They grow like thistles in the yard. Russ warned me about this. This was two seasons ago, and we were out on my back deck looking down. And I, for those of you who haven't been on my property, the, the back area there is pretty, just, pretty much just what it is. I mean, we haven't done any landscaping. It's just forest, you know. And the grass was growing, and I'm like, I'm just going to let the grass grow. And Russ goes, you see those, those kind of purple flowers down there? I said, yeah. He said, those aren't good. <laughs> what are those, Russ? They're thistles. Oh. Well, I'll just go cut them down. He said, yeah, it may be too late for that. He was right. I spent the whole season fighting thistles. Every time I cut down a bunch, more would crop up all over the place. It took me forever to get rid of them. They kept growing. You're going to grow one way or the other. You're either going to grow up in your salvation like fresh, sweet, new grass, or you're going to grow up twisted and thorny and thistly like thistles in the yard. Brothers and sisters, in this world, which is itself twisted and thorny, we would have no hope except for this. Jesus took the thorns. John 19, verses 1 through 5, tells us how Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, how the soldiers took that crown of thorns, twisted it up, and pressed it down on his head, how they, they whipped and beat Jesus and called him the king of the Jews and they began to slap him in the face. They would blindfold him and hit him. It was a game the Romans played. They played all kinds of games with them. And by the way, the games they played, they made markings in the stone and it was a, a specific game they played with prisoners. And today in Israel, you can go into this place called the Fortress of Antonia and see the writing in the stones of the Romans, the very place where Jesus was brutalized as he wore the thorns on his head, as he took the thorns. But he didn't take the thorns so that we could be prickly people. He didn't take the thorns so that we could be thorny. He says, I give eternal life to them, John chapter 10. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. But tell me, which do you think the Lord would prefer? To hold soft, sweet, wet grass or thorns? David says of the thorns, he says, they cannot be taken in hand. And God cannot abide sin and rebellion and wickedness. And unless we take Jesus who took the thorns, we cannot be held by the Father. The thorny life of the son of Belial cannot be taken in hand. And so we grow. So we grow one way or the other. Either tender grass or twisted thorns. We will grow. And as I said, this is the last song of David. He stops right here. He will sing no more. He will die shortly after this. With these words hanging in the air. And you might say, well that sounds kind of harsh and judgmental. A little bit unloving. On the contrary, it's love that repeats this warning. It's love that says, I want you to be saved. It's love that says, I want you to grow up in your salvation, not as thorns. And by the way, did you know God himself is a singer-songwriter? He is the great singer. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. 
I'm going to read this in the King James. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. And thou shalt not see evil any more. For in that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, and to Zion, Let not thy hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save, He will rejoice over thee with joy, He will rest in His love, He will rejoice over thee with singing. Father, we praise You. We thank You and we are in awe, Lord, that, that You sing over us. That you sing your songs of joy and compassion and mercy and grace into our lives. We rejoice and we are amazed. And Lord, we know that the day is coming when you will sing over Israel as you have as you have sung salvation for us. We thank you, Father, for this very evening and for these songs of David and for the things you've showed us. And we pray now, Father, write this song in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.